Um, good morning. My name is Rick. I'm the pastor here, or one of the pastors here, in case you didn't know who I was. And um, this morning, we are not talking about generosity. How about that? Just some of you are very, everyone was afraid to hoot and holler over that. But I know, I know, I get it. I totally get it. Um, so a couple things. One, Kent has a lot of heroes. Um, and just to be clear to everyone, I am clearly not one of them. So that's good. Um, that's all right. I'm fine with that. Other thing, and she's not in the room, so I, I feel free to say this. So uh, you all couldn't see it because she was all the way in the back. I was all the way in the front. But uh, when, when Kent called out the Holy Cross D team, my wife, who, who is the kind of coordinator of that team, stood up, and Ann Marin stood up, and, and Rob didn't stand up. He's one of the teachers. So she said, Rob, stand up. And I swear from here, that is not the finger it looked like. And I'm like, wow, what did he do? Uh, but it wasn't. She, you know, it's not like that. Anyway, this morning we're, we're doing something new. We're, we're starting um, a, a short series in uh, the book of Malachi. Malachi is, is, I'm sure all of you are very familiar with Malachi. Or Malachi, the Italian prophet, as some have called him. Um, he is not. Although, although I will say, especially our text next week, does sound an awful lot like a line from The Godfather. And so um, maybe we'll, we'll read it that way. Who knows? Malachi is one of the, one of the uh, what are called the minor prophets, which is not to say that he is, he's not important. It's to say that he's one of the shorter of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the last book in the Old Testament. And, the, and, and as we go through this book, we'll, we'll be spending about, I don't know, four or five weeks here as we, as we get into the fall, and then we'll start something new in the fall. Um, and, oh, one last thing I forgot to mention before, before we stand in honor of God's word. I don't know if you've noticed... Uh, I'm not, I, I had to get off social media a few years ago because it was just driving me crazy. But some of y'all are really, you can handle it, I can't, so God bless you. Uh, but Chapman sent me a picture this past, or last night, of somebody posted, somebody who's not affiliated with the church, right? I mean, I saw the name, not affiliated with the church, posted a picture of our sign that's at Frontier Drive, and then the string of comments, right? The string of comments. Some of them were great, some of them not so great, but that's okay. All press is good press. Um, if you're on social media, I would encourage you like to engage in some of that stuff. People are curious about what we're about. Like, I mean, how many, uh, how many denominational churches have you seen, like actually do a building project in the last, like, like a new building in, in forever. People are going to be curious. So use that opportunity just to, you know, engage, invite people. I think Chapman invited them all is what he said. So I don't know. Didn't work. Sorry. Uh, that's all right. Maybe it did. I don't know. Maybe you're here because of that. So this morning we're in Malachi 1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you flip and you find Matthew, just turn to your left. Malachi 1, 1 to 5. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, you've heard enough of me ramble. Let's get to the word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. But your own eyes will see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for the time together. It's it's just good to be together uh, worshiping you and uh, having our sanity restored. And we ask that you would do that this morning, that by the preaching of your word, by the gospel of Jesus, that you would restore us in our sanity. Make your name great. Lord, change us, throw your weight around in this place so that we would be changed. Might go from here as a people um, who not only loves you, but loves to see other people come to know you as well. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. 
So some of you in this room uh, might not be familiar, maybe you're new to Holy Cross, maybe you're just new uh, to church in general. You might not be familiar with the practice of what, what is called expository preaching, expository preaching. Um, that is, what, what, like most people, um, especially if, if you've grown up in church, what the kind of preaching you've heard is either like more story than scripture, right? Where we, we read is something, but we never really reference back to it. It's like we read God's word, but then there are really good stories. I am not a good storyteller, so that's not what you'll hear from me. Um, and for other reasons, not just because I'm not a good storyteller. Or um, it's more topical, like kind of like what we just went through, our, our stuff on generosity. Uh, topical, there's nothing wrong with topical sermons as long as they're based in scripture. But in, in the grand scheme, no one really cares about my unsupported opinions on anything. And, they, and those opinions certainly can't change your life. Expository preaching is about taking passages from the Bible, um, and more often than not, through an entire book of the Bible, and and kind of teaching it, applying it to our current situation. And and today, like I've mentioned, we start doing that through the book of Malachi. Okay, this is the last book of the Old Testament. It's probably the last one written. We'll get into the history here in a second. I know that some of you are really excited about history. All right, let's do it. But what is great about this book, though it was written, you know, uh, several, well, uh, you know, 2,000 plus years ago, is that it connects so well to us because it deals primarily with what we do and how we act when we are disappointed with God. And I know most of us in this room are way too spiritual to ever get disappointed with God. But you get to listen in while the rest of us engage with it, okay? So here's what we're going to see this morning. is simply this. That God meets our disappointments with proof of his love. Okay? God meets his, our disappointments, first and foremost, with proof of his love. And as always, there's a big outline in your, in your bulletin if you like to take notes. If not, um, don't worry about it. So let's, let's engage with the history here for a minute. Andrew, yeah, there we go. So around 1440 BC, some scholars will put it a couple hundred years uh, later, um, you have, and by later I mean like closer to us, you have the Exodus, right? That's when God's people are coming out of Israel, are coming out of Egypt, they're coming out of slavery, Moses is bringing them out, they are, they are marching their way into the land of promise. God had made promises to, the, to, the, to Abraham that his family would have this land and that he would write the world through them and so that's what's going on and it's coming then and then as, as things develop you have this period of about you know, 400 years of this time that they call the time of the judges. And that's where you have, um, you have the end of the book of Joshua, you have the book of Judges, and you have Ruth. Like, all of that is going on in this time period that we call the time of the judges. And then around 1051, around about, um, there, Israel has its first king. It's a king by the name of Saul. And Saul is everything you would ever expect in a king. He's the biggest, strongest, best-looking dude in the entire kingdom. Uh, the entire land. And he's made king. The one problem is that he is not, um, how do we say? He's not really into God. And by that, what I mean is like, he goes through the motions, but it's not really his. He doesn't own it. Some of us are there, right? Some of us have been there. Like we've gone through the motions for a long time. We're still going through the motions, but we just, it, eh. It's kind of because our parents expected it. Now maybe it's because our spouse expects it, but we, eh, we're not really there. And then in about uh, 1,000, around 110, 1,000, somewhere in there, King David takes the throne. And, and some, most of us, I would say, are probably familiar with the idea of David. David is the guy who slayed Goliath. He's the shepherd, musician, king. Um, he, he kind of takes the throne. And his family is given a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that that uh, because he's a man after God's own heart, that his family will have a place on the throne of Israel forever. And that goes well for about one generation, okay? You have Solomon who comes up after David, and Solomon, known for being super wise, and he's, he's, he is wise, he can navigate life pretty well, but the problem is, he kind of over time begins to walk away from the Lord, um, and then his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne in around 930. And Rehoboam, not a great guy. Just not a great guy. 
the, the nation comes out to Rehoboam's core nation and they say, you know, listen, your pops was really, really hard on us with the taxes. Can we, can, and, and the forced labor and all this other stuff, can we, can we just back off of this? And Rehoboam's, or Solomon's advisors told Rehoboam, like, look, they're right. You really should kind of back off. Like it would be, it would be a really good move early in your reign. Just kind of give everybody a break. But Rehoboam had some other advisors. They were his friends. They were all young like him. Guys probably in their 20s, maybe 30s. And they said, no, no, no. You've got to show them who's boss. They're not the king. You're the king. And so Rehoboam comes out and he says, you think my dad was a man? I am four times the man my dad was. And I'm going to do, you, he did this. He, he hit you with whips. I'm going to get you scorpions. And they're going to hit you. And they said, okay, peace out. And the, and the nation divides. A nation divides northern kingdom, which is 10 tribes, and then the southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes. The 10 tribes in the north take the name of Israel. The tribes in the south take the name of Judah, which is why in the Old Testament you have them talking about the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And you're like, I don't, I don't understand. Well, it's because Israel is in the north. Judah is in the south. Okay? And so uh, the northern kingdom never does well. They never kind of follow the Lord immediately. There's a guy who reigns them by the name of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he, in the Old Testament, is like the, the epitome, the, the ultimate of the worst kind of king you can be. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they, he, every bad king is compared to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Unfortunate name, all right? And he sets up for them from Jump Street, from get-go, two golden calves. Because everyone who knows anything about Israel's history knows things go really well when you introduce golden calves into the, into the mix. And he introduces two of them. And he says, you can worship in these two places on two mountains with these two. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. Our Lord, he takes worship anywhere. And you can just go and worship with these calves. And things go bad from there. And from the northern kingdom, from, you have multiple prophets who are involved in this time period. You have, you have Isaiah, you've got Amos, you've got a bunch of different guys who were, who were speaking and prophesying in the midst of this time period when the, the kingdom's separate, the northern kingdom's still around. And God keeps warning the northern kingdom, you've got to return to me, you've got to return to me, you've got to return to me. And they never do. And so... 200 years later, I want you to, I, I know y'all, some of y'all think the Old Testament gods is God of obscene wrath. 200 years later, they've never followed him. The bulls was the best they did. After that, they went with long wooden pillars I'm not going to say much more about that. You can use your imagination about what that was about. But that was, the bulls were the best. And so 200 years of them walking away and God warning and God warning and God warning and God warning. And finally he's like, you're just not listening. And so Assyria, Assyria, you got to be, you got to be careful in the middle, in, in the Near East, right? You have Syria, you have Assyria. Assyria was a regional uh, 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 kind of a regional power, an empire, and they came on the rise. And this guy by the name of Sennacherib, he was their king. And he swept down in 722 and he took all of Israel and he pulled them out of their land and took them into exile. From that point on, there's no more talk of those tribes. They're gone. They're gone. No more. Judah had Good kings and bad kings. They had some good times and bad times. And over the span of time, they, you know, during the Sennacherib crisis, this is when you have, um, you know, Isaiah, the end of Isaiah, uh, where, where Sennacherib's coming down. You have a king by the name of Hezekiah who, is, who started out really good and starts his, starts his reign off well and repents for the nation and, and, and God spares Judah. Sennacherib goes home licking his wounds. But things just keep going downhill even in Judah. I want you to think about this. This is God's people. And yet God's people who had all the right rules, all the right worship, all the right experiences of God, the right history to say God was a, he showed up in a pillar of fire. And he's, he's, he 
gave us this land and, and we fought against people who were way bigger than us and, and God always gave us the victory. They have all of this rich heritage and yet they just can't keep it together. It's almost as if they needed something more. They did. And so in 586 BC, a new kingdom has arisen, taken over Assyria, a kingdom by the name of Babylon. And the Babylonians, God had warned Judah and warned Judah and warned Judah until finally, under the, under the, the uh, ministry of Jeremiah, down comes, down comes Babylon. They take Judah into exile as well. And not only do they take Judah into exile, they sack the temple, destroying what was the house of God. But God made promises. He made promises through uh, prophets that, that were going on after this time. He made promises through Jeremiah. He made promises through a guy by the name of Ezekiel. He keeps making promises that this exile is not going to be the end. I will bring you back. And when I do, and here's the important thing. So check back in. I know some of you are like, history class. Ugh. Check back in. When the exile ends, here's what's going to happen. The exile will end because God has forgiven your sin. I'm going to send a Messiah. And that Messiah is going to reign on David's throne forever. And that Messiah is going to, going to lay waste to the nations. And the mountain of God, Zion, will be lifted up above all. And the nations will pour in. And those that will not will be down. Because God will be exacting his judgment and finally making the world right. The temple of God will be in its midst and God, the presence of God will be back there and everything will be made as it should be. In 593 BC, the Persians have now taken over the Babylonians and a guy by the name of Cyrus has taken the throne and he says, you know what, Israel? Go on back. You can go back to your home. And so they go back with great expectation. This is where you have the ministries of, of um, Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and they're expecting, as, as a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, you know, try saying that five times fast. Zerubbabel is coming back with them. He is of the line of David. He's going to help rebuild and they're going to all be restored. And they get back to the land and it's a mess. It's a mess. And so they try to rebuild they try to rebuild the temple and on the day that they rebuild, they start laying the foundation. There are elders there who weep. Others are cheering and they're weeping and they're like, this is not it. We know what this is supposed to be and this is not it. It's as if they were in the land, but it, exile was still there. It was still going on. They were still being ruled by Gentiles, by those who hated God. Yeah, he let him go back, but it's not like he kind of gave him autonomy. Now they had a governor over them who didn't really care about them. All of this stuff is going on. And so you have the last several books of the Old Testament, right? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And all three of these books are dealing with the fact that you have God's people back in the land and they are just overcome with disappointment. What happened? Wasn't this supposed to be the most awesome thing ever? Wasn't, didn't God say that when the exile ended, everything would be made right? And here we are. I mean, when, when, when um, Nehemiah shows up on the scene, Jerusalem is in ruins. They got no walls. Everything's, a, like, there's no safety. It's like, what is this? going on and so in around 430 BC this guy Malachi comes on the scene and he begins his prophecy his prophetic ministry towards Israel this way the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi now 
I know that most of us believe that prophets are fortune tellers, okay? That they tell the future. That's really not biblically what a prophet is. Biblically, a prophet, though, can have insight into what the future is. Biblically, what a prophet does is they are, for lack of a better word, lawyers, okay? They are taking the covenant that God has made. We'll talk about that in a second if that's new to you. And they are basically prosecuting a case based on that covenant to God's people. In other words, they are not so much trying to predict the future as it is influence it. They're trying to get change in God's people. And that word oracle that it begins with, this is the oracle of the word of the Lord, more often than not, in fact, I think in every other instance of the use of the word, precedes, when they say an oracle, it precedes judgment. What comes after is a word of judgment. Interestingly enough, the first thing that comes after the word oracle here is God's statement of, I love you. Now, we keep going. I, I have loved you, says the Lord. Okay. Now, when it says, I have loved you, that gives the sense in English that what it means is, once upon a time I did. But in, but in the original, because this was written in Hebrew originally, in the original, that is a, kind of a, a, it gives the grammatical sense, not only of something that has happened, but something that has happened and continues to happen. I have and I continue to love you. I am loving you. Now, what is amazing about this, and as we engage in this, I need us to understand something. In our culture, when we say, I have loved you, what we mean is that I have, I have felt affection towards you, right? right? Love in our culture is, is founded, first and foremost, on affection. Which is why, when affection wanes, so does everything else. We feel affection towards someone, so we... We may, um, we may marry them. And when we do, we make promises and all this stuff. But if the affection wanes, well, the, the foundation of the promises goes away too. And we're like, ah, I'm just not in love with you anymore. Right? I mean, we know how that works. Some of us have been through that. Some of us have been in families that have been through that. But in the Bible, affection is not the foundation of love. Loyalty is. Let me say that again. Affection is not the foundation of love. Loyalty is. And affection is meant to spring from it. And so when God says, I have loved you, what we need to hear is not primarily he has this sense of just overwhelming, just warm fuzzies. He just loves, I love you. Like, I just love. Primarily what he's saying is, I have and continue to be loyal to you. And they question and say, how? It's gutsy, isn't it? How have you been, I mean, you can almost hear it. Like, I have loved you. How? How have you loved me? I mean, think about it. They're sitting in the midst of a land that's in ruin. They were promised this glory and they're sitting in a dumpster fire. They're like, how? I'm loyal to you. Oh, <laughs> looks like it. Like, this is what they're saying. And, and I know that for some of us, that is crazy, right? But I also know this. Even if I don't know you, I, I think I know this about you. You felt this, right? You felt this. This overwhelming sense of like, God didn't meet my expectations like he, he didn't, but we don't say it. We don't say this, of course. We, we don't say it. But we felt it. You know that when something doesn't turn out as you expected it should, whether that's because of something you found in scripture or just your own expectation of what God must be like. The first thing we do is question, does he really love us? Does he really love me? Something didn't work out. I mean, do you even love me? You ever wonder why? Why is that the go-to? Well, can I tell you, like, we've been doing that since the beginning of time. Right? If you go way back into the garden, way back, okay? 
Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're hanging out and their life is great. And then the snake shows up and Eve's talking to the snake and probably should have had her antenna up as soon as that happened. But you know, the snake's out there and he's talking and, and his, the first thing he communicates to her, did God really say, and she's like, well, this is what he said. In fact, she added to it. And then he goes, yeah, he, that's not what it is at all. In fact, the It's not anything other than he knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll become like him. In other words, it's not that he's caring for you. He's actually holding you back. Which, by the way, for those of you not very familiar with the Bible, let's let's be clear. The only person in the Genesis Genesis 3 account who says that that fruit is going to do something is the snake. He's the only one who says, you eat that, it's magical. It gives you special powers, like God powers. He's the only one who says it. But the the doubt that was raised in the heart of Eve and in the heart of Adam, he's standing by. Don't make like he didn't know what was going on. He's hanging out, just kind of like, well, look at that. Snake's luring my wife to hell. I think I'll just sit here and watch. That's a good idea, right? Like, what's going on in their hearts is this thing of like, oh, wait a minute, maybe I can't trust him. Maybe he's not for me. Maybe he's not good. Maybe he doesn't love me. And ever since then, when we turned away from him, that has been not something we have to learn. It has been the default. It is not a bug. It is a feature. It is a feature in our human operating system. God doesn't really love me. I have to take care of myself. I have to handle it myself. I have to do things myself. It's the feature And so when God is answering this question, how have, you, how have you loved us? He goes to history. Look down at verses two and three. He says this. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Okay, now, if you're not familiar with Jacob and Esau, they are part of this family, the family of Abraham. So let me give you a real brief overview because their family is super dysfunctional, Okay. I know that we've, I know, I know, I know, I know. If you grew up in church, you've been led to believe that everybody in the Bible is like perfect but you. No, okay? So Abraham, Abraham is like 100 years old. He has a kid. That kid's name is Isaac. Isaac, um, child of the promise, told early on you're the child of the promise. I'm sure he was a total gem to be around. Like I'm sure Isaac was just, I mean, you got old parents who had you when they were 100 years old, never had a kid. You're the, here's the kid. And you said, you're the child of God's promise. He was probably a nightmare to be around. So Isaac, Isaac has a wife, his name, her, her name's Rebecca, and he has two boys, Esau, the older one, and Jacob. And daddy loves him some Esau. But mama, she loves Jacob. And they play each other. They play them off of each other, right? And so um, God had said in, in some, they, they heard that, the, the younger or the older is going to serve the younger, which is totally not normal in biblical times, that Esau is actually not the guy that's going to go through. It's, it's um, Jacob. But again, Isaac loves him some Esau. He's a big boy, hairy. I, I don't know why they talk about that, but apparently he's very hairy. I guess that means manly. I don't know. Anyway, he's the hunter. He likes to hunt. He likes to make soup. Apparently his soup's pretty good. Or no, Jacob's soup's pretty good. But he likes to hunt. And, 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 um, J- and Isaac loves Esau. And so he's not really listening to this fact that the promise is going to go through Jacob. And so what, what Rebecca does is Rebecca, in her infinite wisdom, decides to trick her husband. I'm going to trick him. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you, Jacob, get what's coming to you by manipulating my husband to do what he should do. So you can imagine what dinner must have been like with these folks, right? Like a coolness there and, and like nice on the outside, but there's something going on underneath. Incredible dysfunctional family. But here's what's important. They are two brothers from Isaac. In other words, they are, they are not only of the line of Abraham, They are of the line of Isaac. They are his two kids. But Jacob is the child of the promise. In other words, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, where the name of the people comes from. And from these two brothers comes two peoples. 
okay? The family of Abraham goes through Jacob and turns into the nation of Israel. And the family of Esau becomes, a, becomes a, another biblical kind of people group that you, you may have heard of called Edom. The Edomites. Those are from Esau. And when God says, now, he says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Again, we have got to get it out of our head that the primary thing that's being talked about is affection. The primary thing is loyalty. I've been loyal to Jacob. I have not been loyal to Esau. I, I made promises to Jacob that I've, been, that I've been faithful to. I did not make any promises to Esau. In other words, the differentiation between these two peoples, Israel and Edom, and we'll get to why this matters in a second, is God's promise-bound relationship that he calls a covenant. A covenant, the covenant relationship is the way in which God said, I am going to make the world right. He makes it with Abraham. He continues it through Jacob. And he says, it's going to be through this family that I am going to make things right. Now, here's the thing. Israel has said, how have you loved me? And he goes, remember back when? This is is weird, right? Because the Bible stubbornly insists on basing so much in something that has happened in the past. Some of us are really, we don't like that, right? We'll get to that in a second. But the reality is, is that the Bible stubbornly insists that these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, are actual people that God made actual promises to, at least one of them, and that the fact of his love to Israel is not because they're great people. It's because he made a promise to Jacob. You with me? Because this is huge, very important. It's not because he goes, you know what, Israel, you guys are awesome. And I love you because you're awesome and you, you do the right things and you sing the right songs and you, you, you say no to the right things. He goes, no, 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 I have loved you. Well, how have you loved us? You remember Jacob? I promised, I promised. What were those promises like? Well, look, look down at verse four. We're going to see some promises and proof. So verse four, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Okay. So here's again, what's going on at the time. So geographically Edom is to the Southeast of Judah. Okay. Not in the same area. Well, same area, but not in the same land. The Edomites live down there and, and, Judah and Israel, they're in one situation where everything's kind of been broken down and destroyed. Well, guess what? So are the Edomites. So is Edom. And that has happened uh, in a different way. It wasn't because of the Babylonians. It was because of a group called the Nabataeans. It's not important. But the point that God is making is, look at the two situations. And I'm sure Israel is going, I am looking at the two situations. They look alike. And God's going, they may now. But these folks may try to rebuild, but it ain't never going to happen. When's the last time you met an an Edomite? Anyone? Anyone met anyone from the nation of Edom? Anyone even heard of it? Except maybe in the Bible? Like, no. God said they, they will try and rebuild, but I will not let them. And this is meant as a point of differentiation. You're going to get, you're going to be uh, restored. They never will be. You want to look at how I deal with, with, with these things? Look to the covenant promises. I made promises to you. You're going to be restored. I didn't to them. They will not. I have loved you. I have been loyal to you. They will never be able to rebuild. Now, Here's the thing. Let's look at promises of hope. As I said, Edom's state right now is similar to Israel. Israel was torn down too, and that's the problem. Everyone is looking around saying, where's the glory? Where is it? And so God gives them this promise. He just declared, here's what I'm going to do to Edom. And he says, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. In other words... Edom's not going to be around, but you will to see what happens to them. You're going to be there. And the 
basis is my covenant love for you. It's going to look different than you expected. In particular, it's not all happening at one time. But God's view of all of this is longer, larger, and promise bound. Do you see that? Here's where this ends up for all of us. Here's where this ends up. God has called his people, listen close. God has called his people to judge his love for them on the basis of what he has already done and in light of that to see what he has already done on what he has promised he will do. You with me? When we come a question, does he love me? God is going to say, look at what I've done. I've already done it. Don't you think I can handle the rest? So what, Rick? Well, let's, let me speak in a more applied manner if I can. Malachi is a series of disputes, okay? What we're going to see is five, I think it's five, maybe six, but five or six disputes that God has with his people. And because of that, it is also disputes that God's people have with him, okay? Now, what do you think about that? What do you think about having a dispute with God? Because my bet is, if you grew up in church, that was, that was a no-no, right? You weren't allowed to actually be upset with him. You weren't be allowed to be disappointed in him. You were taught that you should never question God. But you do. Of course you do. He's a person. Like, we question him. And of course you question him. But here's what you do when that happens. It's actually very similar to what you do if you grew up in a home where you weren't allowed to question mom and dad. But you did, right? You would do just enough of what they said to fly under the radar and not anymore, right? Like, just enough effort to say, no, I did that. I did the dishes, but you're going to have to do them again because you left all the crap on it before you put it in the dishwasher. Or, you know, like, I, I, I did come home when you asked me to, but the truth is you were 30 minutes late, but you had a really good excuse. It wasn't true, but he had a really good excuse. And that's what we see in the book of Malachi. We see it in this entire book. God's people are going through the motions, but that's it. They're not going to him and saying like, man, what is going on? I'm upset. Things don't look like the way I think they should. Instead, they're just going through the motions, hoping to do enough to not be judged. And so God, in his love, comes to them. They're being passive aggressive. And this entire book is what can happen when we become disappointed with God. And it begins at this point, at the point that we are at this morning, the love of God. Because God's love for us is the source of all of our doubts. It's the kind of the the wellspring of poison that kind of wells up in us and taints everything else. Does he care? Is he attentive to me? Does he see me? Does he even know what's going on? We have been asking that question since the garden. Like I said, it was doubt in God's love for us that first moved us to turn from him in the first place. Because you see, These questions, does he love me? Does he pay attention to me? Does he even know what's going on? All of these questions can be answered with a no if we have certain expectations of what that will mean in our lives. And those don't come out of nowhere. For some of us, those expectations come out of God's word. Right? We've read it. We know what it says to some degree. And we go, I mean, this is what to expect, right? Or at least they're based loosely on it. So what are those expectations that we have for God in our circumstances? I don't know, things like, um, I'm not really going to struggle with sin anymore. Aren't I supposed to be a new creation? If anyone's in Christ, new creation. Not looking like it. Old is gone, new has come. Maybe that we're going to be wealthy. That God's going to, when God provides, what that means is that I will have everything I ever wanted. Life is going to go really well for me, shouldn't it? I am God's, right? If I'm God's, shouldn't life go well for me? Maybe it's that I'm not going to be lonely anymore. 
Like if God, if God puts, if, if I am known by him, won't I never experience loneliness? Because he's everywhere, which means he's always with me, so I'm just not even going to experience it? Maybe it's that our kids are going to turn out exactly as we intend. Because if you raise up a child the way they shall go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. Until they do. Look, I get it. But what do we do when it doesn't happen? And I know some of us right now are wrestling with this. We're right there. Because some of us in this room are struggling with the same sin that we have been struggling with since we became a Christian in the first place. We're like, I don't get it. I can't change it. Not only can I not change it, I don't even really want to. Let's be honest. It's not just that I I can't. It's not just that I don't. It's that if we really get down to brass tacks, I don't really want it to change. I like it. I might want to want it to change, but sometimes I can't even muster that. I, I just, I'm like, I know I shouldn't, but I mean, what's going on? Some of us thought like when we became Christians, our marriages would just get better. Just automatically, just And they haven't. Or we thought God would give us a spouse and he hasn't. Some of us thought that being Christians would just mean that things would automatically just work out for us. But they haven't. And so what do we do? Well, if God's word is right, the first thing we do is we question whether he cares. It's the first thing. Does he care? And then our relationship with him begins to grow cold because we're, we're like, probably not. He probably doesn't. So maybe the snake was right. Maybe I do need to kind of protect myself from him. Sure, maybe you go through the motions, but your heart isn't there. Your prayers are formulaic. You're, you're, you, if you get any time in his word, you're just checking a box. You're not even just kind of glossing over it. You come to worship, you come here, but you're not really here. You're kind of somewhere else. Listen, I get it. I've been there too. It's like things just, everything just goes cold. You're disappointed because God hasn't come through on his side of the bargain, right? Two things about this. First, I say this all the time. I would love for you guys to have this phrase in your pocket that you can pull out when you're struggling with this kind of stuff. God is not your Coke machine. Do not put in your obedience, press your button and get your blessing. That if you, if you think that, you cannot possibly read the Bible. Because Jesus was the only fully obedient person who has ever lived. And he hung on a cross. And the apostles who followed Jesus and lived more godly lives than you and I could ever imagine suffered. There's no way to think, if I am do the right things, believe the right things, and do it enough, push my button, I get my blessing out, God will do for me because I have done for him. That is a contractual relationship and our relationship with God is not contractual. It is covenantal, which means it is based on unilateral, unconditional promises. It's not I do this, if you do this, it's I do this. God says, and I do this. Well, what if I don't do this? God says, I still do this. Unilateral and unconditional. If your relationship with God is basically to get him to give you these other things that you're currently not getting, and that's what's making you disappointed, can I tell you, you are not worshiping God. You are using him to get what you worship. You are using him to get what you worship. I don't care if that's a spouse. I don't care if it's an answer to your loneliness. I don't care if it's good kids. A good I don't care. If you're using God to get those things, that those things are your God. Second, remember what we said above. God's people in Malachi's day were living in this weird place where they had come back to the land, but they still were in exile. Scholars call this the now and the not yet. In other words, a reality has come. It is now, but it's not here in full. And you and I, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are in this place as well because Jesus came to deal with our sin, but we still struggle. He came to put an end to sin and death, but death still touches us. Sarah Flood right now 
is sitting with her mom who has probably days because of her cancer. It still touches us. He came to reconcile us to God, but we still struggle to love him and we doubt him all the time. And he he came to make us one new people, but we fight with each other and we sin against one another. But at the same time, we do experience that sense of forgiveness, right? We do. We do experience change in our hearts and lives. We do experience a strange peace and even, dare I say, like joy in the face of death that is really weird. We do find that in Christian community, we can be known and loved. And this is the now and the not yet. What we are experiencing is the intrusion of God's new world into what is our current reality. We truly have these things. We do. We truly have them. But we will not have them fully until Jesus returns. So how do we navigate this now and not yet, right? That gets us to the basis of our hope. Because, I mean, if you're anything like me, your experience does not line up with your understanding of the Bible. And it is awfully tempting to deny him. Awfully tempting. Awfully tempting to think he doesn't care at all. Well, what does this passage teach us? It says the love God has for us, the loyalty that he has for us, is based on something he has done in the past, and in light of that, the promise of something that he will do. That is why, friends, the historicity of the Christian faith is so important. One of Jesus' first followers, a guy by the name of John, he said it this way. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know everyone is very familiar with the word propitiation. I, will, I could just move on, but it's really important, so I'm going to explain it anyway. All right? The word, I'm joking, by the way. I'm joking. I know we're like, what does that mean? Propitiation is a very churchy word, and it basically means this. It means taking someone from the place of a status of sinner and under judgment to putting them in the status of pleasing. It's important. It doesn't take you from sinner to neutral. No, no, no. It takes you from judged to pleasing. Pleasing. In other words, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are the basis of our belief in God's love. You want to know whether God loves you? Don't look to the fact that you didn't win the $1.2 billion Mega Millions. I didn't either. Like, I get it. You didn't win it. Like, God hates me. Ah! You had like a chance in what? Like 350 million? It's like you had one chance in the entire population of America. Come on, man. Somebody had to win it. Somebody did. But it wasn't you. But don't place, place your emphasis on does he love me based on that. Look to the cross. There, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, intentionally, fully intended... He intentionally bore the weight of your betrayal of God to accomplish our forgiveness. This is not an idea. This is not a theory. This is not a fun story. It's not a fun story. If that's what it is, it's like not. That's ugly and awful. This is an event that happened in space and time. There were witnesses to it and testimony about it. And people died rather than say, nah, I was wrong. And it's not just from the Bible that we get that. That was God fulfilling his promise to make us right. And then Jesus rose from the dead. Again, not an idea. It either happened or it didn't. If you're here this morning, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, and you're sitting on the fence with that, like, I can be a Christian and I don't really have to believe in something crazy like the dead being raised. Only ancient people believe that. No, they didn't. They knew dead people didn't get up either, which is why everyone thought Christians were crazy. You cannot sit on the fence on this one. It either happened or it didn't. Jesus' first followers were stubborn about the fact that they happened, that this happened. They witnessed it, and this resurrection was the beginning of the new world that God had promised. If that didn't happen, the rest of this doesn't matter. Like, just pack it up. I, we should sell dices to somebody who can make us skating rink out of it apparently someone wants a skating rink I'm like who goes skating anymore but the resurrection becomes the basis for the promise of God to fulfill all of them 
See, another one of, of Jesus' followers, uh, a guy by the name of Paul, called the resurrection of Jesus a down payment on what is to come. In other words, what happened to him is what's going to happen with everyone. It's what's going to happen with everything because when you put a down payment on something, the rest, you can expect more of the same, right? I don't put a down payment on something in pencils and, and get the rest in cash. You put a down payment and you get all the same. Jesus' work, his resurrection is the down payment of everything that would follow. So if you are expecting if all that you are expecting of becoming a Christian is what happens in this world, then yes, you will be deeply disappointed. Because you and I will never experience the fullness of God's promises on this side of glory. But if we rest in the gospel promise that Jesus' work not only deals with the penalty of sin, doesn't just deal with the power of sin, but will one day deal with its very presence, then we can look beyond our circumstances. The gospel of Jesus gives us hope in the midst of disappointment because it tells us that our place before God is more, far more secure than our circumstances. It was secured not by us, but by Jesus. And that is the evidence of his love. He didn't wait for you to get your stuff straight. He came to straighten out your stuff. So that by faith in him, you could be reconciled with God. God meets our disappointment with proof of his love. He did it in Malachi's day. He did it by pointing out to the unconditional choosing of Israel, choosing of Jacob, and promising to make things right through that family. And he does it today. He does it by pointing to the work of Jesus as the basis for our reconciliation and the down payment of the world to come. Would you pray with me? Lord, over the next few weeks as we go through this book, I ask, I pray that you would use it to move in our hearts that our disappointments with you, which are real, we have them, that those disappointments would be met not with coldness on our part towards you, but with a reminder of your love. And if you have loved us, then we can lay our trust in you, in your sovereign control of all things. Give us that hope, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.